0: So, open your Bible if you would this morning to Joshua chapter three, and I would like to read uh, the entire chapter, and then I'll uh, explain uh, where we're going uh, from here. So, Joshua chapter three, and again, of course, this is this is at the very uh, precipice of the uh, Jordan River crossing. So Joshua chapter three, beginning at verse one. And Joshua arose early in the morning and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying, when ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, Then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When ye come to the brink of the water of the Jordan, Ye shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Gergashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now, therefore, take you 12 men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, And they shall stand upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood. And rose up upon a heap very far from the city of Adam, that is, besides Zeraton. And those that came down toward the, toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over. And as I mentioned for the next three sessions, I'd like to consider with you this Jordan River crossing. And we'll look at it from both chapter three and chapter four of the book of Joshua. This morning, the title of my message is Beholding. Next time, we'll look at Engaging. And then thirdly, Memorializing. I have three main headings this morning I'd like to consider with you. Um, and again, this message is some, somewhat more preparatory or foundational. Um, it's going to really set the stage of of where the real focus is. And I really believe we need to understand it and develop it to get the full impact of what, what God is showing us um, here in this crossing of the River Jordan. Um, but before I get to the three points, I'd like to... to uh, share with you today, uh, let me just make two brief comments by way of introduction. Um, and I think these two comments will, will actually be borne out and developed over the next couple of messages. But uh, number one, we cannot overvalue the significance of the Jordan River crossing. We cannot overstate the importance of what God is doing here. Um, And again, we'll see this as we progress. But but here we are at the point where the Israelites finally, finally get to get into the promised land. And and they finally begin to possess it, uh, driving out those people groups that the Lord said he would drive out. Um, There's going to be the slow buildup of of the nation of Israel, uh, the monarchy, uh, the Davidic um, a monarchy as it goes to David and his dynasty. It'll get to the golden age of Israel as Solomon's temple is built. Um, we're going to see, see Israel now really ascending to what God wanted them to be. But all of that was predicated upon them getting into the promised land and that was predicated upon them having to cross through the Jordan River. Um, it, it's crucial, it, it's, it's pivotal. Um, in the history of God's redemptive work with his people, then, historically, and then uh, from a typological standpoint, or what he wants the, the believer to know today, there is, is really a lot here. Um, and again, these two chapters have a lot of typical redemptive truth. There's going to be some realization of God's promises, we're going to have a window into the workings of God, how, how, how God is working things from his divine standpoint. Uh, we're going to see this tremendous miracle of, of crossing through, uh, similar to the Red Sea, but, but remember when they crossed through the Red Sea, it says that the waters were like a wall. Here, God drove the water uphill 15 miles away to the city of Adam. Again, there's a significant truth there, but it's it's a tremendous, a tremendous miracle. Um, And we see God's people, as Romans chapter five says, the obedience of faith, the obedience of gospel faith, childlike faith, just following God and taking him at his word. So we're really going to see, especially the next two times, we're really going to see Christ in the midst of this event. And we're going to understand that this scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that we might be thoroughly furnished. So that's the first brief comment. We cannot overstate or overemphasize the importance of this event. Secondly, I want to just make a brief comment about the spiritual meaning of crossing the Jordan River. And again, this is going to be developed especially in the next two Sundays we are together. But Crossing the Jordan River has been the subject of many hymns and many sermons that use this account to picture physical death and going into that promised land, going into heaven. And uh, guide me, O Thou Great Jehovah, for example. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside, death of death, hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Or I am bound for the promised land. Um, there's, and, and I'm sorry, you maybe have, you've heard sermons that talk about uh, that picture. Um, however, I believe what we're going to see here, really, what is in view, is relative to the Christian life and Christian experience, with of course Christ at the center of this whole event. Um, whereas the Red Sea crossing had deliverance at its center, the crossing of the Jordan River is going to be seen as something, something pivotal or something marked in the believer's life while we are still here in this present life. One, one brief quote from a survey of the Bible. Um, the land of Canaan was the land of promise. But although, although traditionally it has been typologically identified with heaven and the Jordan River with death, it rather points to the Christian life and experience. Canaan was not the place of endless bliss, but the place of enemies, warfare, conquest, victories, um, defeats, and Israel was finally led away in exile because of its sin. Um, we are going to see that the River Jordan does focus on death, but we need to d- define what God is speaking about in that, um, in this picture. And he's going to be speaking about the reality of, of the death of self, the death of the old man, if you will, um, into the experience, the growth, the blessedness of really living in the Christian life the way uh, God wants us to. We'll develop all of these as we progress over the next three weeks. But this morning, as we behold this account, I have three sections. Number one, looking backward. Number two, looking forward. Number three, looking Godward. And then one, application. First of all, looking backward. If you were an Israelite, after trudging through the wilderness for 40 years, and you came to the very Brink of the Jordan River and you knew you were now going to get to finally cross through that river and get into the very land that Jehovah God had promised you, I think there would be a looking back by way of contemplation, by way of reflection, by way of understanding what God had done over those 40 years, and there would have been an appreciation for what was about to happen. The promised land was called the promised land for that very reason. God promised it to Abram and then Abraham and then to his descendants. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the promise that God would bring Abram's descendants into the land. And then in verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And this promised land becomes a key theme throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, both for them to get there, and then as they are inhabiting it, and then later as they are removed from it. God promised that they would assuredly get into this land. He promised it to Abraham and his offspring. And though this promise had been given 400 years earlier, it was now going to come to pass as they stand on this brink of this river. And they must have had this thrilling prospect that it was, it was go time. It was, it was the day. It was going to happen now. So they had the promise of the land. And I think as Paul uh, says, speaking about God, uh, that what God had promised he was able also to perform. And so they staggered not at the promises of God, though 400 years in the making. So I think they might have reflected back on the promise of the land. I think they might have reflected back on the promise of deliverance, the promise of deliverance. Again, God had told Abram, he said, know of a surety that thy seed will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. And they shall serve them and they shall be afflicted for 400 years. But also that nation whom they will serve, I will judge them. And afterward, they, that is the Israelites, will come out with a great substance. They had to reflect back on that promise of deliverance, of being enslaved in Egypt. And of course, they were brought out, were they not? But here we begin to see the contrast between the Red Sea crossing and Moses and the Jordan River crossing and Joshua. Moses brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Joshua brought them in to the promised land through the Jordan River. Moses had a ministry of deliverance. Joshua had a ministry of conquest. Moses was a deliverer. Joshua was a warrior. And think about those two water crossings, if you will. When they came to the Red Sea, they were afraid. There was confusion. There was alarm. Uh, even Moses himself seemed to be uh, have some misgivings and wonder, is this really what God wanted? We're shut in by, these, by, by the mountains. Um, is, uh, Egypt is running after us, behind us. The people are afraid. But crossing Jordan... We have this methodical, well-planned military operation. They're bivouacking on on this other side of the river and and everything is laid out on how they're going to get into the promised land. And the people seem to be uh, in tune with what is about to happen a couple days hence. They're very deliberate for this crossing. Also, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, where were they being delivered into? It was the wilderness. Uh, It's called the Waste Howling Wilderness. It's a desert. It's foreboding. It's not their home. But coming into the Promised Land, now they're coming into their home. And it's fertile. And it's rich in natural resources. It's rich in agriculture. It's, 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 It's a very... Uh, uh, premium land so as they're looking backwards as as they're getting ready and they're reflecting on the deliverance and the promise and I think they also had to reflect on the wilderness that they just spent 40 years in spiritually speaking have you ever been in the wilderness And, and isn't that a hard place to learn lessons I mean, they had to reflect on, gee, it took us 11, maybe 15 days to get to Kadesh Barnea, and, and then we failed. And for that one failure and for some other reasons, God turned us back into the wilderness for 40 years. And I, I think they had to have thought what might have been if we, had, if we had been faithful, if we had followed on to know the Lord, if we hadn't murmured and complained. Uh, If we had exhibited faith and obedience, I think as they looked back and they contemplated these these three things, they had to be so resolute to follow God's leading to get through the Jordan River and possess the land. God's goodness in getting them through these stages. God's mercy that he would perform the very thing that he had promised. So looking backward, I think they were able to reflect on the fact that the land was promised by God, the promise of deliverance that was realized and the subsequent being able to get into the land and the wilderness wanderings, which certainly had to be a very negative thing in their experience that they wanted to put as much distance between that and their new life for the Lord. Secondly, this morning, looking forward. Now as they look forward, I think they see something very positive And they see something very negative. On the positive side, what they see is, they see the land. They see this promised land. And let me give you four of the biblical adjectives that describe this land. There's many more. But I think these four uh, paint a picture of what the promised land was to be about. First of all, richness. 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 As early as Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, God said this land would be a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a beautiful graphic. Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. Natural resources, agricultural richness of the land. A, a land that was going to be prosperous for them and, and, and blessed. And even those ten spies that were able to convince God's people to not get in there, even those ten spies said, this land is tremendous. Uh, uh, look at these grapes. Look at, they were able to, to describe the land the way it really was. Richness contrasted, of course, with the wilderness. Secondly, labor-free. Labor-free. God had told them they would inhabit houses. They would get vineyards, orchards. Um, olive yards, all of these things which they did not have to labor for. God's word in Deuteronomy says it, it's, it's basically going to be a turnkey operation. That's a, a, a buzzword that we use nowadays, whether it's a piece of machinery, a franchise, um, it's turnkey. You go in, you turn the key, and everything works, everything's there. You don't have to do anything, no labor into the land for which you did not labor, and then you get to enjoy the work of others. I I trust spiritually you see that imagery, right? You get to inherit this land that you don't even have to work for, and it's given to you, and not only is it given to you initially, but then you get to reap all the benefits of that work that was done by others. Thirdly, inheritance. They're not just going to occupy the land, it's they are inheriting it. Leviticus 20, God said unto them, you shall inherit the land that I will give you and you will possess it. A land floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have, has separated you from other people. An inheritance, of course, is something that is bestowed or begotten or given normally because of the death of someone else. It's an inheritance. Fourthly, it's the best land the Lord could give. In Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 6, God is is having this discussion with Israel. And he goes all the way back to the land. He says, In the day that I lifted up my hand unto them, to the Israelites, to bring them forth out of Egypt, into a land that I spied out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all land. God is saying, I gave you, this is the best I could do. This is the best land I could give you. So as they look forward, they see this land that is, has a richness to it. It's labor free. There is this, it's an inheritance that's given to them. And it was the best God could do for them. Of course, the promised land has has many other descriptors as well. It's the place where God's tabernacle is going to be replaced by his temple. Um, It's it's not just a geographical place, but it's also like it's a state of blessedness. Uh, It's a place of uh, anticipated additional future blessings and promises. It's a place of security. It's a place of God's presence. It has the attachment of this is God's will for them. So all the goodness of God is somehow also attached to the land for his people. The promised land. I think the past 40 years that they spent also had to have been a a further impetus to really appreciate what the Promised Land was all about. So positively, they saw where they were going. Negatively, there was something in the way, the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a very interesting geographical barrier that God put there. It's 200 miles long. It drops in elevation almost 2,500 feet it begins up by Mount Hermon. It goes by the Sea of Galilee. Think of Capernaum. Then it goes 60 or so miles down to the Dead Sea, passing right by Jericho, where, where these Israelites are in that, that rough area. The, the name Jordan means descender or to go down. And it was at the time of the barley harvest. Um... And we understand that this river was filling out its banks. So, so the Jordan River at this time, it had two sets of banks. Um, when it overflowed, it was a lot wider than it normally was. Normally it would be 20 to 30 yards wide, 10 to 15 feet deep. Where they were going to cross, there's two additional banks because the river was overflowing, these banks were probably about an eighth of a mile of width on both sides. And so they had the banks that were filled with brush and bluffs and uh, shrubs and trees, the narrow banks, and then they had the additional banks that would have made the crossing more difficult. God even talks about the overflowing of the Jordan, talking about it as being an obstacle. Uh, In Jeremiah 12, he argues from the lesser to the greater when he says, you've run with footmen, but they've worried you. How can you now contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein you trust, that's worried you, what will you do in the swelling of Jordan? It's a significant hindrance. We have this torrent of water descending almost 2,500 feet, overflowing the banks, the banks being Uh, clogged up with bluffs and dense brush. And so it was a problem. It was going to be a difficulty as they looked forward to this Jordan River. But of course, when we are confronted with obstacles, what do we do? We look Godward. We look Godward and we trust God. So number three, looking Godward. We are taught to rely upon God, to wait for him, to expect something from him, to trust him. Our lives are to be very much oriented Godward. If God can't make a way, nobody can. If God doesn't do it in his timing, then it's the wrong time. As they look forward, they, have, they see the land, good land, very good. They see the obstacle, a problem. But for any given situation, to reconcile issues, looking for God's blessedness, the solution is to look Godward. Verse 3, commanded the people, saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. That is, go after the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, is the place of God's special presence. We'll talk a lot about the Ark um, next time. The Ark, of course, typical and representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mercy seat, that integral part sprinkled with blood. Um, And we could also say those three elements inside the Ark, also typically sprinkled with blood, representative of the prophet, priest, and king offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that next time. But the people are instructed to follow after the Ark of the Covenant. That is, follow after the Lord. The Ark was never seen by the congregation. The Ark was in that holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest once a year would go in and perform that act of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. When the ark was moved, as the people changed uh, those 42 stations to come out of Egypt, it was covered with badger skin. It was covered. They could not see the ark. And we don't know if the ark was actually covered now or if it wasn't, but they saw the, the physical ark, at the very least, covered, and they were told to go after it, to follow it, to look to it, looking Godward, understanding that it's only looking unto him, only following him that we could be led to the promised land. So we have looking backward, looking forward, and looking Godward. And again, by way of reminder, I believe that over the course of the next couple of Sundays together, we're going to show that the Jordan River does signify death. But it's not speaking about our natural death and being ushered into heaven, but rather the reality of the death of the old man ushering us into the promised land for the Christian um, experience. Growth, blessedness, the transition from being babes in Christ to being more spiritually mature adults spiritually speaking so now, in the last place i 'd like to to talk about an application, and this is going to begin to open up, I think what where we 're going over the next couple of weeks. Let me read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy, and you 're going to see what it 's going to do it 's going to link the Red Sea. With the Jordan River. And we'll start to see hints at what this whole event is all about for the Israelites then and what it's about for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh. And upon all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. The application is simply this He brought us out that he might bring us in. Simple, is it not? He brought us out that he might. Bring us in. Simple, but but far-reaching implications. He brought us out that he might bring us in. That is, we might know the fullest expression of what it means to, spiritually speaking, live in the promised land. To be brought in, we have to cross the Jordan. We have to... Understand why he saved us, for what purpose, and how we are now to live as Christians, to be brought into the good land of, of blessedness and rich Christian experience. We do have to cross the Jordan. We have to die to self. We have to deny ourselves taking up his cross and following him. Another quote, the Jordan points to the practical application of death of self of deliverance from the self-life, this Christian by grace has decided to lose his soul in order that he might save it, which means nothing less than the decision to apply the cross not just in a doctrinal way or a theological way, but in an experimental way, in a subjective way, by grace, through faith. He brought us out that he might bring us in And there will be this amplification of blessedness, of being truly associated with him, living a rich Christian experience. We're going to say more about this in our third message. But it's imperative that we be brought in. We were saved not to feed on the husks of swine, but to dwell in the habitation of our Father. Jesus said, I came that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. The spiritual applications of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the understanding of the Jordan River crossing pointing to the Christian life and experience where our life is elevated, or we're growing in grace and knowledge, or there's this progression where we in fact have the reality of that our old man died and now we are alive to Christ, applying the reality of the cross to our life. Do you know any Christians in your life reflect upon your own life that though the Christian experience could be described as the promised land was described, rich, labor-free, it's an inheritance. It was the best God could give. Spiritually speaking, do you know any Christians, or have you ever been, not there, but living elsewhere? Labor-free. I, I've met Christians who, though they know grace, they seem to constantly be under this yoke of bondage where they feel they have to labor or work to gain a renewed standing with the Lord, or or some aspect of grace. Some seem to be still wandering in the desert and they have no ambition to get into the promised land. Perhaps even still wishing for the leeks, garlics, and onions of Egypt. There is a sense, if you think about the Israelites, there is a sense that even when they were out of Egypt, they were not out. They constantly longed to go back to Egypt. Egypt was in their hearts. It wasn't until they passed over the Jordan River that they were really out of Egypt. I think that's a true statement. It wasn't until they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land then they were finally out of Egypt. He brought them out that he might bring them in. Both are connected in reality, in practice. And the New Testament puts this concept or this idea this way. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that that I think we don't understand. Remember the verse that says, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die. We always separate those, don't we? I think it's talking about the same thing. There's a time to be born and a time to die. That's the Christian experience. We're born in Christ and we die to self. We die to the old life. Colossians chapter 4 puts it this way. I always bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, there's death, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. But to be brought in, you have to cross Jordan. You have to, in a practical way, understand what it means to deny self, what it means of death of self. Again, this objective and subjective truth coming together, maturing us from babes in Christ where we know nothing, to, to going on, following on to know the Lord in, in 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 more of its its richness and its fullness. Another quote if the Red Sea deliverance points to the substitutionary death and positional identification of the believer's redemption in Christ and if the wilderness wanderings reveal the need for the Jordan to cross over and leave the wilderness behind so then the experimental identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection is necessary. The difference between the Red Sea and the Jordan are as The difference is as vast as the objective, theological, and subjective and experimental side of the cross. The difference between the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan River crossing as types are as different as being positionally redeemed and in a very practical way living as a Christian. And by the way, we're going to see this when we come upon a very strange occurrence while they cross and after they cross the Jordan River, as they erect a memorial to the Lord in the middle of the river, and they erect a memorial to the Lord outside the river. So, by, so again, by way of application, death to self, what, what is our Jordan River? What, what, what do we have to die to to really live as a New Testament Christian, not not with the mores of today, but relative to the New Testament's idea of living as a Christian. Very often our financial goals, our ambitions, our dreams, that part of a life that we want to maintain for ourselves, our rights, our wants, our desires. Again, as you think about Ourselves and as we think about others, there always seems to be sometimes a barrier or something that is keeping us out of, even though God wants us to live, spiritually speaking, in the promised land, even before we get there. We're not talking health, wealth, and prosperity. Rather, we're talking about driving out and victories and establishing worship, the very same things that Israel did in the promised land to show that God was among them in reality and in truth. He wants the New Testament church to do where we can pray in sincerity and truth, not my will be done, but thine be done. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the infinite price to become the captain of your salvation. To set aside his glory and make himself of no reputation. To take upon himself the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of men. To pay the, the price to cross that great divide, the Jordan of eternity, of time and space, crossing there. Again, Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Something that he did by grace. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He wants the whole Chuck, he wants the whole Doug, the whole Linda. And Christ living in us is what our legacy is to be, is what people are supposed to see. To be crucified with Christ, it's not a figure of speech. A a figure of speech just saying that, well, Christ died for us, so in some way there's this representative uh, idea. But in fact, the old self, our legalism, our worldliness, our lusts, our habits, our passions, our we're being conformed to the image of His Son. Christ is being formed in us. Galatians chapter four. Paul said in Galatians chapter one, Christ is revealed in me. It's this whole spiritual mystery, this this divine dynamic, where God is getting glory for Himself by by making us genuine, true believers in Him. It's something Christ is doing. Union with Christ necessitates the old. Lifestyle, the old man being cast out, the new wine bursts the old wineskins, reformation, conscience, law, all of these things will never conform us to the image of, of Christ. They will never do a work that has lasting, true spiritual, mature fruit. Christ living in us. We have to die that we might live, spiritually speaking. The life is Christ's. It derives our power from Christ. It is swayed by the will of Christ. It seeks the ends of what Christ wants. It's the spirit of Christ breathing in us, if you will, communicating Christ to us. And it's realized by grace through faith. Paul lives in faith, the power of Christ, the love of Christ constraining him. This metamorphosis, In so many churches today, the idea of the gospel is a message is preached and the person is left to try to put the pieces together, to think about it. Does it make sense? And as a result, he might believe upon the Lord, at least on the surface, and then his life is, well, now my life is going to be better. Whereas Paul talks about it's a revelation of God by the Spirit, and then what is happening is it's not, now my life is going to be better, but Paul said, now Christ is revealed in me. It's two different things. What's happening here with the Israelites as they are finally getting into the Promised Land, the crossing the Jordan River, we're going to see, and it's really going to be developed again as we get to next week with the ark in the middle of the river and then these two monuments built We're going to see all of this coming together to picture for the believer what Christ has done for us and what that in reality does to his people. Well, again, I trust that as we uh, come together again over the next couple of times, I will be able to to stitch uh, these all together so it will make sense and be able to see the entire beautiful picture and what the spiritual Applications are for us as believers of the Lord. He really does want you living in the promised land of Christian experience, which is not so much things in our life and uh, it's more of that relationship, the real uh, relationship, an elevated relationship with Jesus Christ um, through his word, through his spirit. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that in mercy and in grace you have so ordained this Christian pilgrimage that that we are on, that after having been delivered with so great a redemption and then learning much, often in the wilderness, often with more defeats than victories, yet then coming to that place where we realize really what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and, and so desperately wanting to, make, to have him make that application to our life, to our experience, to our growth, to our knowledge, to, to, to our emotions, our intellect, every part of us. Because in reality, uh, Father, we are yours. Father, help us to live as Christians, uh, truly as, as reflected upon the pages of thy word, not according to the morals of today. Oh, Father, might you get glory in our lives by Christ Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.